Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Condon Smith Hansen, author of Frontier Religion, Mormons in America, 1857 to 1907. Smith Hansen is a lecturer of religious studies at the University of Arizona. All right, Condon Smith Hansen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so to start, uh, would you please just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your scholarly background, and how you became interested in this topic um, yeah, well, my scholarly background, I have a PhD in uh, religious studies at Arizona State University, um, and I also have degrees in history. And the thing that brought me into this is I always had one foot in the history department and one foot in the religious studies department. And I noticed kind of a disconnect when it comes to religion, that in my history classes, religion wasn't really a topic. It wasn't really seen as a strong uh, thing to really look at that really mattered. It was seen as something private, something individual, something that didn't really affect things. In other words, as one of my historian friends once told me, religion is just an excuse for what's really going on. And then I went into the religious studies department and religion is kind of the lens for everything that's going on. And so there's this like incongruity between the two disciplines. And so that fascinated me. And I was also fascinated with conflict in religion within history. And so I started noticing things I'd read, for example, in the Utah War in the 1850s versus things I'd read in the, uh, uh, for example, the Reed Smoot hearings, which I also look at in the first part of the 20th century. I noticed how people were dealing with religion was so different, but yet at the same time, historians spoke of them the same. And I don't mean just like historians in the history department. I'm kind of talking about also uh, like religious studies departments and other things would there. There's just a very different way that each uh, department speaks of the importance of religion and what religion looks like over time. So I started being fascinated by this incongruity, this, this lack of coherence between different uh, departments. And I was also fascinated with religion. And I think that had a lot to do with my own background. I did grow up Mormon. That became much more complicated through the research of this book. Also through my studies that also become much more complicated. So, um, but by the end, uh, I became much more empathetic to what was going on by way to the Protestant side. And so I started trying to I started realizing that the same issues that Mormons were dealing with and Protestants were dealing with were kind of, they were tapping into something shared. And so I noticed the books I'd be reading weren't tapping into that shared environment that was happening. So I became more and more fascinated with the role that the frontier had on both of these groups. And so I think that's what this book was about in a lot of ways, just trying to make sense of this uh, incoherence between uh, departments, but also within how I thought about it as an, as a Mormon at the time. And so uh, I, I suppose I should preface that I am no longer Mormon, but that was that was my heritage and my background at the time. So by the time I finished the book, 
I'm no longer Mormon. So it had a kind of a self introspective moment where I had to kind of uh, be more honest about where I was coming from, but also what that positionality does to me as you're looking at religion when you're looking at your own community. But then at the same time, when you leave that community, how does that also affect the writing? So my book had to do a lot of introspection throughout to kind of find out what kind of biases are not just in the narratives you're choosing to speak within, but also the words you're using, the very frameworks you're using. And so this book was very much kind of a meditation into uh, history, but also I think what religion actually means. And so I was really trying to tap into the deeper question about what religion is itself. And so that was kind of um, had a lot of unintended consequences. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think you've in some ways anticipated my next question because um, you've titled this book frontier religion. And since uh, the frontier and religion are both sort of terms, ideas, uh, that are not consistently understood throughout time, let alone from person to person. Um, like what conceptions of uh, religion did you use to inform uh, this book? And also, like, what was your conception of the frontier? Yeah, that the yeah, both religion and frontier are both constructs or both terms that are historically placed. So uh, a lot of times when we think about religion, we just kind of su- assume it's this type of sui generis, it always is, it always was type of thing without realizing the way we speak of it today didn't exist how people spoke of it in the 1800s. And so there's something about, there's something we invent with these terms. And it's the same with the frontier, that concept. So my book is about looking at the changing definitions of these terms. And so in some ways I use the term religion as a kind of a way of framing how we look at the frontier. In other words, Americans looked at the frontier in the same way they look at religion. In other words, it was its own type of religion. It functioned like a religion. They thought about it as a religion. It was a type of invisible cosmic order that interpreted how they read scripture, how they, uh, what they spoke of in church, what they did when they settled things. And so it itself was a type of unofficial religion that Protestants and Mormons both equally tapped into quite strongly. And, um, but I'm also talking about it as a myth that changes meaning once you get to a more secularized, industrialized era. And so I think that shift is important because one reason I looked at Mormonism from a 50-year perspective is because when you look at just one moment, you kind of don't critically engage that term too much. You're not seeing the changes that are happening with that term. So one thing I wanted to do was how are these terms understood in the 50s versus the early 20th century, meaning the 1850s and the uh, by the time you get to the early 20th century. So between 50 years, how do these shift? And if we're looking at the same group of people like the Mormons and Protestants, how are they understanding each other differently from 1850s versus uh, the early 1900s? And so I was wanting to, in some ways, apply an academic definition of uh, religion. And so I do that to look at the frontier, but at the same time, I'm looking at how the term itself, as understood by the people I'm looking at, will have a very different definition throughout this 50-year period. And that changing definition has everything to do with how Mormons become understood in the 20th century. Sometimes we just kind of assume that Mormons adopted something that always was, rather than 
in other words, to become American rather than Mormons adopting something that just came out. In other words, a new concept of religion, they embrace it, but that concept didn't exist uh, decades earlier. Yes, uh, clearly, um, I think you demonstrate the long transition period or the series of transitions um, in this book as the nation is evolving, but also as the Mormon community is sort of finding its way. Um, so is, is there a moment or event um, that you think exemplifies the Mormon experience during this frontier period? So again, for you, it's 1857 to 1907. Uh, and could you describe that? Yeah, one thing I, when you start, I start with the um, with the Utah War of 1857-1858, and the reason I do that is to just kind of set a baseline of how Americans saw the country, how they saw religion, how they saw each other, and their conflicts between each other at that time. And one thing we see very strongly is this kingdom of God idea that Americans could then bring forth the kingdom of God, this type of post-millenarian idea that if they just perfect the country, um, for example, if they can make Sabbath day observance a law of the land, then that's going to be something that'll help perfect society and bring Christ uh, as the rightful king over this kingdom, which America was seen as being. And so during this period setting up this framework, one thing I think is important is one thing I really wanted to bring out was how Mormons had the same exact idea of this kingdom of God. And this actually came out in one of my classes once. I was talking to a professor who read an early draft of one of my chapters, and he says, Mormons also believe in the kingdom of God. And whereas a Mormon might say, Protestants believe in the kingdom of God. So you've got this idea that this kingdom of God feels exclusive, this like theological ideal feels exclusive to uh, these different groups. But when we're looking from a broader perspective, we find out that both of them were seeing the kingdom of God as the direction America is supposed to go. That's the manifest destiny. That's the hope that and the ideal that religion is supposed to then kind of fulfill and finalize in America. And Mormons just thought they were doing it, uh, whereas Protestants thought they were doing it. And one thing they needed to do to do it is to get rid of things like Mormons because they were an offense to it. And so that kind of establishes kind of this, this baseline. And then once we get to the next period, which I look at, which would be the anti-polygamy crusades, because one thing to remember is it wasn't just the establishment of things like Sabbath laws that would bring forth the kingdom, but it was eradicating things such as polygamy. And because polygamy was seen as a grave threat. In fact, some people would speak of it, Protestants of the time, that uh, if you just allow things like slavery and polygamy to continue, these twin relics of barbarism, as they refer to them, then God won't be able to, We, in other words, we'll lose our birthright as these people who are supposed to be upholding God's uh, forms and bringing forth this eventual kingdom. And so what became fascinating to me is during this period, how the Protestant courts and the legal um uh, the legal moments actually defined religion in order to do this. We actually have, I look at the Reynolds case in the late 1870s, and the Supreme Court actually defined religion as something that's private, something that's um, separate from public action. And so, in other words, since polygamy was a type of actions, then that wasn't religious. And so there's this definition that said you can believe anything you want, but you can't practice anything you want. Therefore, the definition of religious freedom in America was finally defined. 
to exclude Mormons from it. And so um, this whole idea was able to privatize. And so kind of what I show in this period is dealing with Mormonism also had the consequence of privatizing religion on the legal level. And so this also is coinciding. I mean, we have the 1880s that are just happening right after this. And the 1880s became this huge fight between Mormons in Utah and the rest of the country as to the continuation of something like polygamy, which was seen as a grave threat. And people had to define what was so threatening about it. And Mormons finally came to the point where they had no choice but to surrender it because of the legal issues, the laws that were then placed. Uh, for example, Mormons in Idaho were no longer allowed to vote. And even Mormons who were saying, well, I'm no longer Mormon, therefore, can I now vote in our elections? And uh, election officials were saying, no, because you used to believe in Mormonism. Therefore, you're illegitimate and you can't vote. So this went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, I see nothing wrong with this. And so Mormons became disenfranchised in Idaho. But you've also had severe laws uh, in uh, that were happening on the national level against uh, polygamy, like the Edmonds Act, the Edmonds-Tucker Act. And these are both in the 18... Um, 1880s. But then you've also got the moment where Mormons felt they were being persecuted for this. And so they had the half, a, uh, the half uh, mast incident where they had uh, different public buildings throughout Salt Lake. They had the half masting of the American flag, which was seen as a grave offense. And he had a lot of threats of violence that were going to have that were going to happen. And so uh, with this whole thing, and I kind of deal with this in my book of the rhetoric that was being used was that this was a type of uh, moment where the civil war kind of became precedent of how to deal with these offenses, these sins against uh, the nation. And uh, since the civil war did away by way of violence with the sin of slavery, now we need a kind of a part two to do away with the sin of polygamy. And so this almost came to uh, um, open conflict, but it kind of became settled in an odd way. But then once the, the once Mormons take these legal issues to the Supreme Court over and over and over again, the Supreme Court sided with the uh, uh, these Protestant legal efforts to do away with polygamy and do away with Mormon power. So in other words, uh, this was a moment through this conflict that religion became redefined in the country from something that was understood more kingdom, communal, to something more individualistic and private. And it was a way of doing away with the uh, performance of polygamy for Mormons. But then once Mormons promise that they'll no longer do this, um, in 1890, they make the open promise that they'll stop play, doing polygamy. We have the World's Fair in 1893. And I think, so I think that legal court case in the 1870s was pivotal, but it was in 1893 that with the World's Fair that we really see the fruits of this. We really see that something had happened. And this is where we see the power of culture is actually shifting dramatically. One thing I was excited about with the cover of the book is they, um, there's a Ferris wheel on the cover, and I think that's symbolic of this rotation that's happening, this like fulcrum moment where something has definitely turned and shifted within the country itself, and the World's Fair stands right in the middle. And I think this is a, a pivotal moment then when Mormons find out that if they embrace a certain type of rhetoric and 
adopt or get rid of another type of rhetoric, then they might be accepted as Americans. And so I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit because I'm talking about how the definition of religion has changed, but I'm kind of skipping a little bit of how the definition of frontier has also changed. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in that. But the whole thing with the, uh, World's Fair, just to kind of back up a little bit with the definition of frontier, is in 1890, this is when the Surgeon General declares a frontier has actually closed. Uh, and I mean, this is all mythical. This is all, the frontier only exists in the minds of white Americans. I mean, obviously, Native Americans aren't thinking of themselves out on a frontier in the far stretches of the American West, but instead their world is centralized. And so this is more of a conception in the white American mind. And so with this, Mormons also saw themselves as living in the, uh, the spaces of not the frontier so much, but rather where the kingdom was to be developed. I mean, even in the what white Protestants would declare as being the frontier West, Mormons were often seeing this as a center place as well, with the Garden of Eden actually being in the western parts of Missouri. And so it's going to be later on that Mormons adopt this white Protestant concept of the frontier uh, in their own ways, but it's at the World's Fair that we really see this happening. And so I'm, I guess I want to stop right there just to kind of make sure I'm not going on a, a tangent that's not really answering the question. No, I, I think you are uh, answering a series of my questions now um, as we sort of try to hone in on what the frontier meant. Um, as I was reading uh, your book, I was also thinking of sort of a borderlands and borderlands theory and how that plays into this, which I think can be seen as sort of a, a counterbalancing or a critique of sort of the frontier thesis um, that you refer to throughout the book and sort of explicate. Um, so I, I think that would actually be a helpful direction to go in. So so what is the frontier thesis um, and, and what role did it um, play? in U.S. history, but also Mormon history, and uh, and how did it sort of shape identity and, um, I guess, ideas about religion, but also about sort of uh, church and state, and I think it connects in a lot of ways to the secular shift you were starting to, um, to reference. Yeah, um, one thing to kind of talk about is in the, uh, to understand the frontier thesis and its significance, I mean, just to kind of give a quick bumper sticker of its significance was that it was able to de-theologize the environment of the frontier. In other words, it was able to give a type of, um, to, to speak about the, uh, the frontier. And I'll just use this term right now, even though I'm going to kind of deconstruct it in a moment, but, um, to kind of see it without seeing God's footsteps within what we're talking about. There's something focused on the environment. So the frontier thesis is to look at the waning and the disappearance of the frontier, not by way of theology, but more by way of in the environment itself. So, but now I just want to kind of back up and make it where we can kind of see the importance of that in throughout the 1800s, we have not just this privatized, individualized concept of religion that we'll later have, but instead, religion, the economy, politics, these are things that were synced together and you couldn't separate them uh, in any simple way. 
And even though we have the rhetoric of different Protestants talking about we need the separation of church and state, what they really meant was church didn't include Protestants because Protestants had this concept of this larger Christ body that we all belong to. So there's still this collective, but it's on this more individualistic, active level. And But when we talk about church, it has reference to Catholicism and its hierarchies, visible things. And so this term church also had reference to Mormons because they had a visible hierarchy. They had thing. in fact, they often referenced um, Utah out West as a new type of papal uh, expression. And so we don't have, it's interesting because um, we also have references to Mormons being the second edition of Islam as well. But what we have, though, is uh, this offense that church was somehow uh, to be separate from the state, but religion wasn't to be separate from the state. In fact, that's kind of what I'm showing is that that rhetoric is simply a way of excluding uh, Catholics and Mormons. It wasn't a way of excluding religion. And that's one thing I, I really try to delve into and explain how this is happening. In other words, Protestants are getting rid of the visible churches from power, but they are an invisible they are more of an invisible church and they're trying to establish themselves as the power that be, which they very much did. But once you get to the uh, secularization era of that really begins to really be seen in the 1890s, I mean, it's starting before then, but we're really seeing it uh, in effect in the 1890s. And this is separating religion then from politics and from economy. So they're now independent forces. So Frederick Jackson Turner is this theorist who produces this frontier thesis, and he presents a paper at the World's Fair in 1893, and he's mimicking what the Surgeon General said about the closed frontier, but he's now providing an academic model for it. And so he's basically saying it's not uh, religious folks, it's not uh, other elites and all that, but what really makes America Americans is the actual frontier itself. Not religion, not theology, but anthropology. And so that becomes a significance. And what's so important about this is this, even though Frederick Jackson Turner doesn't talk about religion, he is essentially adopting this privatized model of religion that allows him to talk about the environment without talking about religion. This is a new concept. And it's one that, um, secular scholars at the time are, are embracing, even the academic study of religion, which is something I try and go into some of its foundings in when I'm talking about the World's Fair, is they're trying to explain a religion and what people are doing by way of new evolutionary models. And if we can do that, then we can understand why people are religious, what are they doing, and on the evolutionary scale of things, what's the future of religion going to look like? And so you get people like uh, uh, James Fraser, who would basically be saying that will eventually evolve out of religion. Uh, Sigmund Freud also had very similar ideas that it's all in neuroses that we just need to kind of evolve out of by becoming more mentally healthy. And so you have uh, many other different theorists who are adopting and so adopting this model. But Frederick Jackson Turner, this historian, is basically fitting right within this type of evolutionary environmental model that's showing that the environment is something independent of sectarian groups. And so what's important about this and really why I think this is so significant is because now there's a model that didn't exist 10 years earlier, but now exists of this, quote, closed frontier model 
that is now devoid of theology, well, now Mormons have an opportunity to define themselves within this model that didn't exist before. So this is kind of a type of uh, secularization of uh, our intellectual, how we think of uh, things such as belonging. And so if we're talking about religious belonging now, this new concept of religious pluralism is emerging. And how do we define it? We define it through this model that um, we're not going to include people based or exclude people based upon theological belief, which is or different uh, things such as uh, not quite fitting in with the right religious groups. And so now Mormons having peculiar belief systems are able to now say that they're American in a way that people will believe it because they can do so by using this rhetoric of the frontier. And so if the frontier is something that made Americans not Christian theology, Mormons now have a claim. They can say, well, look at us. We're out on the frontier. Who is more frontierish than we? So they can now make this claim that we're the American of Americans. We're the ones living out on the frontier. Therefore, we can be defined as not just Americans, but aren't we a type of super Americans? And once you get to the Reed Smoot hearings that happened in 1904 to 1907, the reason that I think Reed Smoot is able to be successful is because he is redefining himself not as a Mormon with these weird beliefs and with polygamy and all that, but he's defining himself as somebody cultivated on the frontier whose morality was constructed out on this frontier environment. So with people having this framework of Frederick Jackson Turner's uh, close frontier model in mind, they, they can believe it. It makes sense. And Theology is no longer the part. And one of the reasons that Reed Smoot was so successful, successful too, is because President, the President Theodore Roosevelt became an ally of Reed Smoot, and he was a big name to support him. And that's because uh, he was very much entrenched in this frontier, mo frontier model himself. So Theodore Roosevelt very much felt that his own biography, he became a powerful, strong, independent, liberty-loving American because he himself went out on the frontier. In fact, he even tries to continue it with his Rough Riders and the uh, Spanish-American War. And so, um, and so, or his escapades in uh, Cuba. And so what we really see then happening is this new logic and the frontier thesis declared this closed frontier mentality. And this kind of allowed Americans to think about themselves. And this wasn't, I shouldn't say this is, well, one thing that's uh, important to note is that this isn't devoid of religion itself. This new secularization that Theodore Roosevelt was upholding through this frontier model or being defined through this frontier model, this isn't secularism that's anti-religion or not religion. This is a kind of liberal Christian secularism. Talal Assad talked about secularism as something that's diverse. In other words, we have a Hindu secularism. We have a is uh, Muslim or Islamic secularism. And we can also say there's a Buddhist secularism and there's a Christian secularism as understood in America. So we don't see people like Theodore Roosevelt not being religious. Instead, they're defining their power by way of a type of religion that focuses on merit as embodied through the frontier rather than theology as embodied in what ministers are saying. Yeah, that, that helps flesh out the idea of the frontier. Although, as you started to talk about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, I started to think that uh, 
sort of the idea of the closed frontier might be um, a euphemism, uh, whether it's colonization or, uh, you know, American empire or, or something else, right? Because if you're consistently pursuing this idea of the frontier or the closed frontier in, in that sort of way, um, yeah, it, it leads to some some different thoughts, at least on my end. And I I've have um, reflected on the uh, the idea, the fact that um, President uh, John F. Kennedy and then President Obama they continued to use um, you know this new frontier rhetoric um, when they were both running for the presidency and when they were trying to make space for an identity that maybe wasn't as fully accepted. Um, by the American populace at that time, whether it was an Irish Catholic or, you know, an African American man. Oh yeah. The, um, concept of the frontier really is persistent and per- specifically within white Americans. Cause this is a mythology that one thing I say is that the idea of the frontier doesn't disappear. This mythology of the frontier doesn't disappear with the secularization of America, but instead it gets re-understood within secular terms. So it never goes away. And the frontier, I would say this religious type of model of how Americans understood themselves through this religious view of the frontier, that retains itself. It just becomes privatized, bureaucratized, something that can be sold on the market. For example, we really see this taking effect with the Buffalo Bill and his Rough Riders where, where actually he's making money off these stories of the frontier and it really creates this this new genre. I mean, we see Westerns emerge that's really capitalizing on this idea of the frontier. It's the frontier, like with John Wayne, we got this idea that um, we become the grit from the frontier makes us American. We're somehow more true American. I mean, we still see it today very much in politics, this idea of a true America or bring I mean, the whole Little House on the Prairie series. And one thing that I find fascinating, and this is getting a little bit beyond my book here, but does have to deal with like new research I'm kind of tapping into from the 1960s with this frontier is this this persistence. For example, the countercultural movement, they're very much tapping into the frontier moment um you've got this idea of going out into the wilderness that's where you really will find not jesus but the jesus from within type of thing jesus is out there on the frontier but also this idea of the the whole uh beat poetry all of these things going out on the road into the west becoming not just pioneers as mormons would want to become and became quite uh acceptable by way of being pioneers rather than explicit mormons but here we have these uh, like Jack Kerouac going out as an outlaw of the frontier. So the vision of the frontier persists, but people are embracing it in different ways. For example, outlaws. And but this is at the same time that white America in the suburbs are watching um, are watching this type of um, recreation of the frontier by way of television shows with westerns and all of that. Um, and of course, we could then delve into the importance of the American garden as a type of recreating uh, a type of frontier blossoming as a rose in our own front yard. In other words, this whole godliness is now something we can cultivate just here in the backyard. But again, that's kind of getting us a little bit beyond that, though, I think. No worries. Uh, you know, this can be a wide ranging conversation. Um, but uh, to sort of connect a, a bunch of threads. Um, so not to sort of zoom past uh, this period when Mormons were not fully accepted, but um, 
uh, so what changed within sort of the Protestant cosmology or within the Protestant world um, that over time um, allowed for Mormons to be more accepted within sort of U.S. identity? Um, and I guess for Mormonism, I think as you wrote, uh, for Mormonism to become like to transform from like anti-American to quintessentially American. Yeah, that's, this is one of the things I found so fascinating. And uh, this is one of the things I found to be most problematic about Mormon studies books is that they focus on the story of themselves, a story that's happening with Mormons. And so you're not looking at the larger context of what's happening in the environment around them. And what we have here is, I mean, really, after we have this whole Charles Darwin concept of evolution really emerging, that's going to have a dramatic effect on how um, people are thinking about not just um, not just the environment and other things like that, but just the very concept of religion itself. This whole idea of evolution, how are we as humans understood now? Uh, where did we come from? Where are we going? And so with the uh, this new adopting of not just evolutionary models, but higher criticism in the study of theology. Um, for example, did Moses really write the uh, uh, the Torah? Uh, or are these something that's more complex if we can analyze it on a literary level? You've also got um, a lot of different questions that are upending you know, a lot of these earlier truth claims that religion was having, things that were just kind of assumed. And so we start having a shift within Protestantism of this type of modernist impulse, as one scholar put it, versus this kind of reaction against this, which would be more of a later would evolve into the fundamentalist response. And so, but at the same time, even though we are getting a shift between these more liberal Protestants and conservative Protestants, that would really be visible uh, in a way in the 1910s that we see the fundamental fundamentalist movement break off and kind of form their own kind of uh, movement against all these things. But the bringing in of uh, modernity shifted a lot of things amongst people who are sitting in the same pews at church, but now they're starting to have different ideas about, for example, what about the, um, what happens to children who die before they've kind of embraced Christ? Are they going to hell? And a lot of these more liberal focused Protestants were finding that that's not compassionate. That's not just, therefore it can't be true. Whereas others, and what about bring accepting other religions into a fold of dialogue? Is this something that we can do? Uh, whereas we have more conservatives saying, no, Jesus was always hostile against diversity, religious diversity. So we should also be hostile against it. But then of course, others are saying, no, Christ was about bringing in love for all people. So there's this, this is starting to, um, I say split within Protestantism within the churches to where you get this like severance that's happening. And this is just dramatic of a severance that we saw in the 1830s and 40s and 50s between churches when it came to the question of slavery and where churches were splitting apart then. But now we're having churches splitting apart over these ideological concerns and these intellectual concerns. So once we get to the World's Fair in 1893, the Parliament of Religion, one thing to remember is that you had World Fairs in Europe, for example, in London and Paris, but these didn't deal with religion. They weren't really concerned with religion at these places. And so what they're really trying to do is to demonstrate how these are the, uh, they're trying to establish their greatness in the world. And the World Fairs was a way of kind of displaying and showing off how cool you are as a nation. And so America, when they do it, they said, well, what's unique about us is that, is that Christ is with us, is that we are 
the true religion. We are the fulfillment of the Protestant Reformation, if you will. And so at least that's kind of the idea that a lot of Protestants were having. So there's this idea that if we can bring all religions together, this great parliament of religion, and this is the very first ecumenical broad um, uh, event that we've that we've seen. This is kind of the innovation of ecumenical movements. And so it's a very important moment in American history, but also in the history of religion more generally. And But what we see, though, is these liberal Protestants put on this parliament, they invite religions from all over the place, and the problems was kind of in the reaction of some religions, but also the problem was how this larger parliament was organized. What were the structures that, for example, Buddhists from uh, different places of Japan are going to come in and what are, are they going to be, how are they going to be embraced here? And how are these uh, Japanese delegates from going to talk about Christian missionaries over in Japan? And so this kind of becomes very complicated. Uh, and what about when we're bringing on uh, Hindu delegates to speak on the same level as different Christians? So some people were really offended that you could uh, some would say stoop Christ down to the level of these uh, heathens. Some even called it a mongrel gathering. And so there's a lot of like uh, concern that you can't put Christ on an equal footing as these other um, heathen religions. Even the Archbishop of Canterbury refused to come, for example. And so the question is then, um, who? how do conservative Protestants respond to this new liberal moment? The way they do so is they hold a counter parliament of religion on the outside. And this is with Dwight Moody. And he basically says the um, gathering on the inside of the inside of the world's fair with this parliament of religion is not the way Christ wants us to go. We need to kind of return back to our basics, you know? So we really start seeing this earlier roots of a type of fundamentalism, uh, kind of a taking back of the meaning of religion for America. And Mormons are kind of coming right in the middle of this. They're trying to be embraced by these little liberal Protestants. Uh, but as you see at the world's fair or the parliament of religion, they're not going to be accepted. In fact, they're just simply not invited. But then once they finally push themselves to be in, they finally, by way of opportunity are able to be excluded. And so that's kind of a little story that I've kind of dug out. And that that's really kind of where a lot of this research began, is I was curious on the role of Mormons at the World's Fair. And I kind of found that uh, Mormons, Mormon scholars hadn't talked about this issue. This was some kind of a blank moment for Mormon history. You have tons of people writing about the Utah War, tons of people writing about anti-polygamy, um, but nothing on the World's Fair. So I was intrigued to jump into this, and I was, uh, I found it quite fascinating to find out this like uh, this drama and the scandal in, in a way that happened with Mormons at the World's Fair, uh, but also when Mormons joined another part of the World's Fair under the secular canopy of the states and territories, they were actually embraced and celebrated because they presented themselves as not Mormons, not polygamists, not unique uh, religion, but instead as pioneers. And so this is really the first time you really see Mormons enforcing this idea that we are pioneers, and they kept quiet about the unique Mormonness about themselves. And in fact, the president of the church, Wilford Woodruff, spoke of being uh, Utah's oldest pioneer right? Rather than having any defense of polygamy, which he was known for just a few years later. Well, I think this connects to an idea you present of sort of Mormon history, LDS history, uh, over time, at least becoming Americanized. Um, 
So maybe you could discuss that process. Like I think you've already obviously touched on that, but um, this feels like a moment that maybe is intentionally that the World's Fair that is in 1893 maybe intentionally wasn't covered because it doesn't sort of fit into that Americanization. Yeah, um, one Mormon historian, Davis Bitten, um, he spoke of the World's Fair. He's like the only one that I really found who's really said much about it. And he didn't say much about it. He just basically said, well, they got kicked out. They weren't, it wasn't an inspiring moment. So it just kind of got dropped and no one really spoke of it and became forgotten in the Mormon memory. And so for me, that wasn't satisfying. And so I kind of, and he did kind of outline the efforts that Mormons did with getting kicked out. But one thing that I think is important to recognize, and one thing I kind of cover the in the conclusion of the book is this idea where Mormons, they found success at the World's Fair by adopting this new frontier model of Americanists, which has a lot of racial implications. I mean, white supremacy is connected to this. You have this uh, new concept of manliness that's very different from the gentleness, the gentile or the gentlemanliness that was more of a Victorian American ideal, but this manliness that Theodore Roosevelt, you know, embodied. And so Mormons are kind of showing this. And so once you start getting historians speaking of history, um, historians, secular historians are really trying to demonstrate how the environment had an impact on creating America as it is. And so that became very important. But what about Mormon historians who now need to start talking about their 19th century history in a new frontier Turner model? And the thing that they did was they kind of got excited about this idea that they can now be kind of with the other cool kids on the playground if they just talk about themselves in this frontier model. And so if they ignore things like polygamy, ignore things like their economic cooperatives, if they ignore other things such as their uh, quest for this uh, kingdom ideal, which included a a type of authoritarianism um, that we see under Brigham Young. And so if we ignore all that, then we can kind of show Americans that we really are Americans and we are these super Americans. And so Mormon historians, uh, broadly in the early 20th century, their history books didn't deal with any of these peculiar issues. And they just spoke of Mormons in a way that you wouldn't really discern the difference between what Mormons were doing, uh, they, or Protestants were doing. They were just kind of this, um, building the West for this larger American enterprise. And so they very much were able to show that um, we're not the people that America was trying to destroy because of our barbarism. We were people trying to destroy barbarism also. And so you can embrace us. We are American in a lot of ways. And so there's this type of uh, uh, embrace of this liberal Protestant conception. And of course, one thing I should say is some people might be saying, but that doesn't sound like Mormonism today because Mormons have embraced more of an evangelical conservative form of Protestant Christianity in order to be accepted as American uh, with the Republican politics and all that. But we're talking about the early 20th century, this embrace of this more liberal secularized form of Americanism that's going to be very important because, I mean, America itself is going to undergo more shifts into uh, this type of uh, Billy Graham, Ronald Reagan, and Mormons are going to be very much following these shifts as well. So, um, But if we keep it in context of up until the Reed Smoot hearings, this is kind of what we're seeing. And I think this is one of the fascinating dynamics of religion is that, uh, for example, Mormons, they're not just Mormon. 
there within a context, and that context is defining who they are, what their theology is, and what it means to be uh, bringing forth Christ's kingdom. And it's very much going to be entrenched in the environment around them. There, There is no religion that's sui generis and eternal. All things are uh, equated from within its own time and place and its cultural context. So you've talked about the kingdom. Uh, how does that relate to this idea of um, the American Israel? Um, I, I recognize that this is not solely a Mormon idea. It's certainly a Protestant idea, um, but arguably other other faiths have sort of uh, been drawn to this idea. Is is there a difference? Is, should we think of the kingdom separate from American Israel, separate from sort of American Zion? Yeah, this um, this concept, I mean, this fits in with the redefinition of religion, redefinition of frontier. The kingdom of God is also going to undergo dramatic redefinitions. Mormons today, for example, think about the kingdom of God as the church itself, the institutional church. If we back up to um, 180 years ago, if we back up to the 1830s and 40s and 50s, the kingdom of God was not the church, but it protected the church. The kingdom of God was a type of political entity, and it was something that was not devoid of those things. Today, it's very much part of this model of the privatization of religion. So the kingdom of God is more of a privatized thing. And Protestants are also undergoing this this secularization, privatization, bureaucratization type of idea of the kingdom as well. And so, and of course, in Protestantism, it's very complex too, but you've got this idea in um, where you've got this idea of the kingdom in the early, in the 19th century, where it's very much, you have Protestant power, but you don't have Protestant power in the West part of the United States or in these territories and beyond because it's not established there yet. There's things, there's forces beyond Protestant power. And that was part of the anxiety. And it was part of the feeling of a type of birthright over this to establish the kingdom of God in the West itself. And many thought by going into the West, and it's just by action of trying to create the kingdom of God in the West, it actually changed Americans. And so there is this idea of um, how do we understand ourselves if the frontier is a model by way of God's working things out today, if the frontier is a type of invisible order that we need to then, uh, you know, bring into our fold, then how do we understand it? And the Old Testament became the inspiration behind that. For example, who are the people out there on the frontier? Uh, it's the Canaanites. How did God say to respond to the Canaanites? He said to use violence. He said genocide was a way of responding to them. How did Americans respond to Native Americans? We see that pattern being followed. And this isn't just conjecture here. This is what Protestants are saying in the 19th century about people out on the frontier. Mormons are also seen as uh, a type of, um, you know, understood within biblical frames too. And so they weren't just looking over there and seeing a peculiar religion. They were looking over there at Mormons and seeing idolaters of Dagon. They were not just, uh, they were not seeing them for who they were. They also looked over in the West and they saw the model, the same satanic model that created Islam as they imagined it. They would look to the West and they would see the second edition of Islam. In other words, same moment that, and this is quoting a historian from the 1850s, where he says the same moment we see Islam kind of becoming less of a threat over there in the East and Europe, things like that, we see it becoming 
we see it rising in the West and Mormons were that. So Mormons were the new fear that people had. So there's very much a very strong idea that uh, Protestants had in the 19th century that they were the new Israel. They were the the ones to create this type of new Jerusalem. And of course, Mormons out West were saying the exact same thing. They were coming from the same environment and they saw themselves it was almost like this Mormon audacity that they were doing what all of America was trying to do uh, or all of white America was trying to do in creating this type of new Israel. Mormons were the ones who felt they were doing so. And the thing that became significant about the secularization era that we're kind of talking about with the World's Fair is we're seeing how this idea of being Israel becomes under the model of the secularization idea it becomes like, uh, Mormons still will see themselves as of the house of Israel, but it becomes more of a privatized spiritual belief rather than something that going out and enacting on a political level. Yeah. And I, I guess I would just interject that uh, it makes sense, right? That Protestants and Mormons would have some similar ideas given sort of the, the world, the religious world that Joseph Smith um, grew up in and, you know, certainly informed his notions of uh, Mormonism as he was founding the faith, right? He was influenced by Puritanism pretty significantly as well as some of the other sort of, uh, you know, I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, uh, if you read someone like Richard Lyman Bushman's work, um, you know, there were just so many ideas that that came from Europe, you know, whether it was like more folk religion, if we want to use that term, or even some of the magic, the enchantment of the world. Um, so it would make sense that there would be some parallels um, with Mormonism and Protestantism, given some of the sort of material that informed um, certainly the development of Protestantism in the United States and Mormonism um, from the beginning. Yeah, I think a lot of times um, we like to imagine if we're from one camp of faith or belief or a community, we like to imagine that we are unique and that those who threaten us, for example, Mormons threaten us if we're Protestants or if you're Pro- or if you're Mormon, Protestants threaten us. You like to imagine that you are totally different than them, that there's a reason God chose you over them. And that's because, you know, you're so, you, you've got things in the ways that things should be. And so this idea of Mormons seeking to create the kingdom of God, I think this is an interesting thing because they didn't just make up all these ideas. They got them from the environment they all grow up in. And if we're looking at the 19th century, we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with largely with converts from a Protestant world. And so either they came from England, maybe disenchanted by some of the things that were of the Church of England at the time, or if they're coming out of more of an evangelical culture in the U.S., we're still dealing with the frameworks, even though they might turn it upside down within the Mormon framework. In other words, I kind of feel like Mormonism was seeking to do what all Protestant denominations were seeking to do as a whole, and that's simply to create the kingdom of God in America and that they would then be the co-regents with Christ in this new land with God's political power being reestablished. Absolutely. Um you know, I, in in many respects, we should be pretty impressed with Mormonism that um, that it continues because there were so many uh, religious leaders, prophets, faiths uh, that sort of developed at this time that we no longer hear about because they have faded into the history books. Um, but Mormonism obviously is a is still a growing community um, in this country and worldwide. Um, so is there anything else you want to highlight um, from this book? I realize it was published, uh, what, 
three years ago at this point. So uh, you might not have all the details, you know, at your fingertips. But is there any person, any idea, any moment that you would like to highlight before we come to a close? Um, there. Well, um, I'm always going to regret not bringing up <laughs> something, I'm sure. But one thing that I'm kind of thinking of is like, what's the point? You know, what's what's the purpose of thinking about Mormons and Protestants in this. And I think one thing that's important about it is to demonstrate their similarities and that they both were structured and affected by the environment that they were in. And so this is not just significant for Mormon scholars or Protestants or historians, but it's also significant when we're talking about the the, the larger framework of how do we then talk about things such as um, religion itself? How do we talk about things like what is the meaning of America, uh, or do we just uncritically embrace some of these terms, such as the frontier and religion, and also this myth of American progress? What does progress really mean, especially when that is seeped within models that celebrate Christopher Columbus and the genocides and all that come with that? And so if we just embrace uncritically certain models of, for example, ecumenicalism, what are we really talking about when we bring a bunch of people together to discuss things? Are we allowing people to discuss things on their own terms or are we bringing in the terms that everybody else is to be defined by? And that's something that happened at the parliament of religion. It was very much a liberal white Protestant model that everybody else had to kind of assimilate to in order to be acceptable. And that was one of the problems of Mormonism is they came in and they were still within a different model as you could see here. And so they didn't quite fit, therefore they were excluded. And when others were excluded, they were on Protestant terms of Protestant leadership. And so that made a lot of people upset. Um, And when we talk about the concept of the closed frontier, I mean, this is an entire mythology that the frontier even exists, let alone it became closed. But one thing that becomes uh, important about this is the function of closing the frontier. I mean, this is something that we see in colonial history. Uh, for example, in um, David Chittister has this great book called Savage Systems, where he talks about how um, the Europeans impose a type of frontier model on Africa. And while people are within this open frontier model, in other words, this point where they feel like they need to be subjugating it to close the frontier, because the frontier itself is a type of model that implies violence. It implies conflict to eradicate things that don't fit the model of those imposing this definition on others. And so once they say this has been closed, then we've kind of solidified definitions. And we've kind of assumed that definitions, as we now speak of them, and the violence that we use to enforce their closure, sometimes we continue to talk about groups from within these terms. And so one thing I think is important is to kind of back up and to think about what do the conflicts look like? For example, in the 1850s between Protestants and Mormons, specifically what I looked at was the Utah War. How do we look at that if we open up the frontier again? If we look at both groups from their own terms, rather than this model of the frontier that emerges in the, or the closed frontier model that emerges in the 1890s, What does it look like when we impose that on the 1850s? And what I saw was a lot of historians did just that, where we have, of course, I don't want to dismiss great works that have been done. But one thing I did notice is that some secularists or 
Secular historians, for example, would look at the Utah War and they would see a fanatic religion of the Mormons against a nation itself. And Mormon historians often embrace this model where we had even the use of the secular in the 1840s, which didn't exist yet. It wasn't a term that came into existence within America in the 1850s. And so, but to use that model on the 1850s was I found quite problematic. And so the way that Mormon historians often did with it is that they often would either erase their religion out of it in order to make the Mormons look normal in the 1850s, um, or they would juxtapose it, uh, the fanaticism of Mormons with the normalness of Protestants. And so what I did was I kind of went back in and allowed the rhetoric to speak for itself, allowed the different groups to define themselves and to define the motives of their conflict. And what I found was that um, that they, they were very much doing something the same thing, just from different sources of power and for different motivations. And this is also something that had international implications, as I kind of looked at with Nicaragua and other places. But um, so that's just kind of one thing I'm thinking of is the so what? What's the implications of this model? And I think it allows us to rethink how we think of religion and all, a lot of these different concepts. And I think there's a lot of implications in how we think of things today, not just historical moments, but also just kind of the assumptions that we have of our own uh, definitions that we don't critically think about. Yeah, well, this is why we do the work, right? This is why we re-examine things we think we already know. Um, and certainly, if, if you're looking at the Mormon community, right, like the history of Mormonism uh, c- continues and uh, a Mormon in the United States today is experiencing something quite different than what they would have experienced in 1857 or 1907. Um, so understanding what that world looked like and doing it from, you know, this sort of this moment in time, I think is helpful because you just, you'll see different things, um, presuming you have, you know, access to the primary sources and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate uh, our conversation. I appreciated the book and uh, thank you, Condon Smith Hansen. All right. Thanks Brady for having me on. That was my guest, Condon Smith Hansen author of Frontier Religion, Mormons in America, 1857 to 1907, published by University of Utah Press. The book is now available online and in bookstores across the country. This concludes another episode of the New Books Network. Until next time.